The podcast at DC is brought to you by The Lab at DC, an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor for the District of Columbia. We're working every day to apply scientific insights and methods to improve district policies and programs. Learn more at thelab.dc.gov. In police command centers across the United States, officers are being introduced to a new arsenal of tools, software that predicts future criminal activity, cameras and drones surveilling streets, databases of personal and biometric information, and with this wealth of information, a promise of a smarter and more fair law enforcement. But as you might imagine, it also raises some pretty big questions about privacy, security, and equity. I'm David Yoakum, director of the lab at DC, and on today's podcast, we're talking about big data policing with Andrew Ferguson, professor of law at the University of the District of Columbia, and author of the new book, The Rise of Big Data Policing, Surveillance, Race, and the Future of Law Enforcement. A quick note before we get started, we're going to be talking about a lot of research and examples from other cities, and you're going to be wondering what's happening here in the district. Stay tuned. We're going to have a part two with the Metropolitan Police Department to talk exactly about that. Andrew Ferguson, welcome to the podcast at DC. Thank you very much for having me. So we're going to talk about the rise of big data policing, which is the name of your recent book, which I think is phenomenal. And I recommend anyone that's interested in this space reading it. And, and even if you're not interested in it, read it, you'll become interested in it. I think to tee this up, I think when it comes to the issue of police surveillance, now, in contrast, even 15 years ago, you know, there's been a couple of waves of activity that have made this prominent in people's mind. You know, after 9-11 with the National Security Administration and the Patriot Act, there was a, a little bit of awareness raising about the, the national security apparatus. Most recently, sort of another layer of awareness about the consumer sphere related to, to Facebook and Google and the data collection. Both of those two layers have, have started to gain a little bit more awareness but your book is really about what I think of as sort of a second layer that has to do with the, the police state, so local, county, uh, state surveillance. And so I'm hoping that you could maybe open up here in providing some descriptions of the types of data or, that is being collected at the, the police level. Sure. So, you know, the rise of big data policing is about how these new technologies are changing, where police go on patrol using predictive policing technologies, who they target using sort of person-based targeting lists, and even how they investigate crimes, looking through data mining and other kinds of uh, uh, systems of being able to identify patterns of criminal activity through the data. And so you're seeing a localized uh, development. Localized in the sense of like what's happening in Los Angeles isn't happening in Chicago. What's happening in Washington isn't happening in Philadelphia, in part because policing is a really fragmented institution, right? We have 17,000 different law enforcement agencies and people are doing different things. But what the book tries to do is to show the national picture of how these different experiments in new technologies is literally changing what police officers do on the street, how they investigate crimes, and in many ways changing the relationship between the police and the community. There are 
types of data collection that police do that I think will be familiar. They're in popular culture, you know, DNA collection, fingerprints, uh, mug shots, the CCTV, little cameras that are placed about. What are the more recent types of data collection that are happening? Some of the technologies that are becoming available over the last you know, 5, 10, 15 years. Right. So we're seeing a rise of biometric technology development, uh, iris scans, but now we're seeing facial recognition start creeping into the, the mix. Right now, there are no... Uh, there's really one or two pilot projects about facial recognition in law enforcement. But uh, as la- as recent as like last month, uh, there was talk of how police body cams, which are becoming the norm in many cities, are going to start developing facial recognition technologies, which I actually think is game changing in the sense of being able to walk down the street and just like an automated license plate reader might read a car to know that the person who is who owns that car has an active arrest warrant. You might be able to do it with faces. Uh, the technology exists. It's not in America right now. It's in China and other countries. Uh, but the fact that the technology exists means that there are not that many barriers to bring it here. Uh, there's a cost barrier. There's hopefully a, a privacy pushback barrier. Uh, but we are seeing it move faster than I ever thought would happen uh, with new kinds of technologies. And that's just biometrics, right? You also have uh, the ability to track uh, cell phone data, cell phones. Uh, we are essentially a culture that has begun a world of sensor surveillance. That's my term for sensor surveillance. But, right, our smartphones reveal everywhere we go. Uh, Google Maps knows everywhere you've been if you have Google Maps activated. The IP address when you check in on your BlackBerry or your iPhone or your home computer or your work computer tells where you are. Uh, And so we're building these data trails that are revealing patterns of who we are and what we do and what we like in ways we haven't really thought about how it will impact law enforcement. But for law enforcement, it's a goldmine, right? I mean, it really is a, a way of seeing individuals and patterns and groups in ways that they haven't been able to see before. To what extent do police departments currently have access to this type of data? So it depends on the type of data we're talking about, right? So most uh, consumer data is just a warrant away at best, right? There's a case before the Supreme Court right now called Carpenter that involves whether uh, police need a probable cause warrant to get sort of the cell phone triangulation data to know where you are at a particular time. It comes from a case, Timothy Carpenter was a robber who, ironically enough, was robbing cell phone stores with his cell phone in his pocket. Uh, and the uh, triangulation of that data uh, showed that, lo and behold, he was at the radio shacks at the time of the robbery. So the police used that in their uh, case, and the prosecution used it. And he challenged it to say, look, you didn't get a warrant to get this information. You used a subpoena under the existing law, and the case has gone to the, before the Supreme Court to determine whether or not a warrant is required. So we'll see what the court does with that. It'd be an interesting case because the implications are if you don't need a warrant for that data, you probably don't need a warrant for most third-party data, which is most data, right? Everything you do on the internet, on your phone, in the digital space is mediated by some third party. Uh, and so if, the, if you don't need that protection, it could be a real change. But even if the court comes out and says you need a warrant, it's a warrant away, right? So if you have probable cause to be able to, to know that someone's involved and you think maybe a gang conspiracy, you can go to Google, you can go to Facebook, you can say, here's the signed judicial warrant. I want to know everything you know about them for this particular time and area. And that is incredibly revealing. Just think about, you know, what your smartphone knows about you. And I think this is a space where what your smartphone or other smart technologies know about you is one where people have some intuitions and knowledge about it, you know, the fact that you're typing in searches and things like that, GPS, but is where I think most people don't realize information is being collected. I'm thinking about 
if it's the Amazon Echo or some of those voice activated things, they're, I mean, they have to be collecting audio all the time to know when you want to turn it on. I think there's even a case. There was, there was a case, a murder case where, uh, the police had asked Amazon for the Alexa reports. Basically it's a, a case out, I think it was out of Arkansas. There's like three guys, uh, watching Arkansas football in a hot tub. One of them dies in the hot tub. Uh, and the, and the house happened to be one of these wired houses that had motion detectors, had the Alexa, had all these things going on. And so police not really knowing what they'd find, uh, asked for the recordings, I think in the hopes that there was something like, Alexa, how do I get rid of a dead body? Or Alexa, how do I clean up blood, right? That wasn't the case, and they didn't get any of that information. Uh, but there was a recognition that these new data trails uh, are existing that will be useful for uh, law enforcement. You know, post this Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal, a bunch of, a couple of journalists have actually asked for the, the data that Google has on them. And what they found is if you're using like a, you know, a, a Gmail account and a Google phone and all that stuff, literally Google knows not only everything you've been Googling, which is obvious, but everywhere you've gone, every contact, every email, every text, who you're communicating with. If you think about the associational data that that connects you with, uh, it really is a more revealing portrait than any person you know, more than your spouse or your loved ones, more than your best friend. Google knows more than almost anyone about the things you do and even the things that you're probably not going to tell your spouse or your friends that you're Googling about that sort of intimate or embarrassing or a medical problem or whatever it would be um, is now revealing. And again, for law enforcement, that kind of information, still a warrant away, so it's not automatic, uh, is incredibly uh, useful if you're trying to build a case on inferences about what happened. So let's talk a little bit about how police departments can use this data? Because, I mean, I do think, and you've articulated just an incredible, almost breathtaking array of the types of information that can be collected from various sources. And in the book, you talk about a number of different things, person-based prediction, place-based prediction, surveillance. Maybe it's, I think it's, I think it's actually worthwhile to talk through each of those independently. And so why don't we start with person-based prediction? What is this? How does it work? Let me give you an example of one technology in one city. Right now in Chicago, Illinois, the Chicago Police Department are using what they call the heat list, or technically the strategic subjects list. It's an algorithmically defined list of people that Chicago police believe are the most at risk for violence. At risk for violence meaning either they are going to be the perpetrator of violence, they're going to shoot someone, or they're going to be shot. And if you make this list, um, you may find a detective at your door, literally your home door, knocking on a door with a letter with your name on it that says, hey, you've made this list. We believe you're at risk for violence. We think this is a time for you to sort of turn your life around. Maybe here are some social services. Sometimes they bring a social worker with them uh, in sort of a public health approach to violence. Of course, it also is a measure of social control and surveillance because you now know police know that you're involved in something. Uh, and it is based on uh, certain algorithmic outputs and certain inputs. And here are the inputs that it goes in. This is how you make the list. They look at past arrests for violent crime, weapons crimes, or narcotic crimes. They look at whether you've been the victim of a, a violent assault or shooting. They look at your age at the last arrest, younger than the age, higher the risk score, and then kind of the trend line. Are you aging out, or is this increasing and you're getting more involved in crime? Um, based on that uh, series of inputs, they run it through an algorithm that was designed by an academic, Miles Wernick at Chicago ITT. It's still secret, although there's some talk that they're going to release the algorithm. And you can get a score, literally a threat score, from 1 to 500 plus. 
And if you make the high enough score, you're suddenly on the radar of police about uh, being involved in potentially violent crimes, or maybe even as a victim. Uh, but it determines how you will be treated. And literally, this threat score, this number, pops up on the dashboard computer when the police pull you over. So they know you're a you know, 482 as opposed to a two or whatever the, the threat scores would be. And, you know, they really only care about the people who have the highest scores because that's how they can kind of triage in a world of finite resources who they want to focus on. Uh, but it creates this sort of, you know, I always call it the virtual most wanted list, like this idea of like when there's a shooting or when there's a problem, where do you go? You go to your list. Uh, and it may be the case that you might also, if you don't get a knock on the door, you might get called in. They have these group call-in sessions that, again, are kind of like scared straight moments of like, hey, we know you guys are involved in crime. We know you're uh, going to do something. This is your chance. We're warning you. If a body drops, we're coming after you. And like, you know, sort of, a, a again, a social control policing uh, model. And that's actually how the, the technology is using to identify targets in, uh, say, Chicago. It's like... A virtual most wanted list, but with a couple of big differences to my mind, and ones that have political, even ethical distinctions here. I mean, one, and you mentioned one of the inputs, but it's worth saying it again and kind of unpacking it, is that this isn't just criteria where you yourself, if you're on this list, have done some sort of prior crime that you've been tagged with. You might be the, the victim of a crime. Un, unpack these types of variables that actually aren't, you know, they're things that get observed about you that are not in the bucket of a criminal thing you have done in the past. Right. So the reason why victimization is part of the inputs is that the theory behind, the underlying like social science theory behind this whole approach is that uh, there are certain activities and group involvements that might make you more at risk for crime. And in Chicago, the problem of Chicago is there are far too many young men dying. There are far too many young men killing each other. And because those same young men don't trust the police, when their friend gets shot, their response is not to go to the police and say, hey, I want justice. It's to go shoot someone. So the theory is that if you've been the victim of a shooting, you're actually more likely to go be the shooter because there are these reciprocal acts of violence. And so the algorithm, as it got defined and, and, and decided sort of through this focused deterrence theory, um, has been over-inclusive because it does impact people who might be victims. Um, but I think that, you know, the police are also aware that they're really looking for the people who they think, think will be the victimizers in the sense of the people who will be the perpetrators. And they're trying to intervene or connect or perhaps just warn uh, people not to make that choice, right? If there's this pattern of my friend got shot, I have to go shoot someone because that's the word and the world that I live in. If there's an officer on your door saying, don't do that. Maybe there's some deterrent value. That's the theory behind it. And again, it, it makes sense. The hard part is when you add numbers and data, it feels a lot more precise and, and accurate than it probably is because they're all sort of proxies for risk that we can't. I mean, no one can determine risk between 1 to 500. That doesn't even mean anything, right? Uh, it's just sort of a, a way to justify a listing or, or you know, in a world of finite resources, a focus on the people who are most at risk. And if I'm an officer in Chicago looking at the dashboard score, 400 out of 500, is that all I have? Or does it tell me that that score was coming from, you know, a prior gun arrest, you know, was in prison? Or, no, no, this is someone who it just happens to be that their brother was shot and otherwise has no criminal background. I'm told that underneath the initial dashboard screen, you can actually click on it to find some of the variables that they'll tell you sort of some of the why that would give you a sense of whether this is you know, a potential victim or someone who's been involved in the crime. 
the problem, and this is the complexity of it, is a lot of victims in Chicago also have the same risk factors to be perpetrators, right? That the flip side of the victimization is that they're involved in sort of some of these same activities. And so it's very, it's actually sort of hard. You, you can't say like good, bad, victim, not victim, because it's sort of interrelated. And the officers probably would, even if they had the data, it's hard to sort of unpack, especially when you have to like unpack in like the real world where you just pulled someone over, you got to go figure out whatever the reality is. I'm going to ask in a second about how well these models work and some of the problems of bias that's in them. But why don't we put on the table the place-based prediction models initially, how these work and how they're different than the person-based models? Place-based predictive policing was actually the first type of predictive policing. It's the one that's actually more widespread in this country. Uh, There are about 60 jurisdictions that are using some form of place-based predictive policing. And it has a different sort of concerns and maybe some benefits. Um, Essentially, place-based predictive policing is looking at past crime data where crime occurred, place, location, time, crunching that up to forecast areas that police believe will be a future area of crime. Why? Because certain crimes are sort of contagious, sort of viral, right? If your house is burglarized, it's actually statistically true that houses in your neighborhood are more likely to get burglarized in the near future. Why? Because the burglar just broke into your house pretty successfully and realized there's some environmental vulnerability here. And a lot of houses are built the same, they have the same weaknesses, whatever it is. It might even just be the same guy or the same group of people who go back or where gets on the street to go do that. And so some crimes, burglaries, car thefts, and theft from auto, tend to be sort of viral and contagious. And so the theory of place-based predictive policing is if you see that pattern, you know, oh, there's a burglary. We're going to put a police car at this area at this time to deter that same guy from coming back. It's pretty simple, right? It's not, you know, fancy math. It's sort of the logic of if you if there are patterns of crime and you can foresee those patterns, you might be able to deter the natural process, right? And so the original rollouts of place-based predictive policing focused on those three crimes. They showed that they could... Uh, in many ways, deter, and this is a theory, they could deter the crime, which would both reduce crime levels and reduce arrests, which is actually a win for everyone, right? If fewer people are getting arrested and there's lower crime, that's actually the real win. And they were able to sort of change patrol patterns where uh, police officers were literally either at roll call getting a map, picture a Google map with little 500 by 500 square foot uh, red squares that they're supposed to go hang out with when they're not on a call for service. Or in the more sophisticated models, they literally had in your squad car computer a color-coded map that changed colors as you drove through the neighborhood. So you may be driving along and everything's fine. And so, oh, there's a green box. Oh, that's a high burglar area. Or you're driving along, oh, it's a high aggravated assault area. And the idea was that in your free time, you were supposed to go patrol these areas in the hope that your presence would deter future crimes. How complicated are the models for both place-based and person-based? Because I think if you're, you're first hearing about this, your, your mind might jump to what some of the, the large tech companies are doing and machine learning algorithms that are impossible to even comprehend in the human mind because of the patterns that they're pulling out. I mean, the last, but it's been a few years, last time I was looking at some of these, they, they tended to be pretty simple kind of things they were looking at, you know, uh, for the person-based stuff. Had you been arrested before? Were you one or two persons removed from somebody that was in a gang for location? You know, how many crime incidents happened in a football block kind of area. Is that still kind of the the state of the art here? Or are these getting more and more complicated, pulling in more and more of those types of data we were articulating a, a moment ago? It sort of depends on the company, and it sort of depends on how much you believe 
the sort of PR hype of the companies, right? It's, and it's hard to disentangle those two things, right? So some, you know, this is a world in, primarily of startups. There are a few big companies who are involved, but primarily it's startups. And the startups are sort of differentiating themselves by their models. So some models are really simple, like Predpol, which is one of the leading companies, essentially says, look, we're going to look at past crime, place, time, location, calls for service. That's all we're going to look at. We want a simple model. We think simplicity is to our advantage. Uh, other companies like Hunchlab is a new company that's out there also competing with, with Predpol. They say we're going to add things to our models. We're going to put in you know days of the week, right? Friday's payday. You might see an uptick in robbery. Weather patterns, right? If there's a huge hurricane, there's not going to be crime that day, right? You know, weather patterns, bad guys don't like getting wet. Things change, right? Those kinds of um, uh, uh, models are growing. And so you see a push, certainly in the literature trying to sell these companies, that this is machine learning, this is artificially intelligent. And whether that's fully true right now, I think we will see it. I think that's one of the things about data. The more data you have, the more uh, abilities you have to train that data. And then you are building into a world of machine learning where essentially you've trained the computer model to learn from past models to try to identify these patterns. And so we'll be seeing it. Open question whether it's really going to work and or whether it will be much better than the human reality we know. But I think we'll be seeing more of it soon. It also potentially introduces a, a tension in that perhaps it increases the accuracy of these models, but because of the complexity or the opaqueness of how it operates, it hinders the ability to have an open, democratic conversation about what variables should or shouldn't be in the model. And, and that's completely true. And one of the dangers is that if you are thinking about you know, race and sort of unfair applications, uh, sometimes there's a real tension between accuracy, what you want, and sort of impermissible variables that you don't want in your model, right? You don't want a model that's based on race. You don't want a model necessarily that's only based on age. And sometimes when they pull it apart, they realize that uh, th those two, you know, the different factors, you, the choices of inputs can impact accuracy and can impact outcomes. Uh, and those are political choices, democratic choices. Uh, and you have to be pretty you know, savvy in the data science world to really understand how any of these work. And most police chiefs, most politicians, most mayors are just not data scientists. And uh, it's hard to have that conversation when people aren't uh, fully aware of all the complexities of it. In this issue of bias or what you refer to as black data is one that I think we're going to really want to unpack. But right before we go there, let's ask the question more explicitly around what do we know about how effective these these models are, these person-based predictions? And and maybe even just starting with, are they, you know, how accurate are they at predicting whether a crime is going to occur with a certain particular person or at a particular place? So, you know, the jury's still out, really, right? There have been only a few uh, tests of whether place-based predictive policing works. The one that gets touted the most is a blind test, uh, but it was created and done by the founders of Predpol, which is a company that's selling the technology, so you have to take it with a grain of salt. Uh, but they looked at whether their technology, their algorithm, could be a crime analyst in terms of predicting the areas of crime. And they did essentially, I forgot it was 130 days or something, where they alternated days between the crime analyst predicting and the algorithm predicting to see which one did better. And they found that their algorithm did better. I think it was twice as good in, in some ways. There are a couple open questions. One is, 
We actually don't know if crime analysts are any good, right? So the benchmark you're comparing it to, which is the existing benchmark, we actually don't know if they're any good. So maybe it's better than something bad, and we're not sure. Uh, but there also haven't been any uh, good objective tests that weren't didn't have some sort of financial interest in it to show that the technology worked. Rand did a study, uh, not on PredPol, but they created their own predictive policing uh, uh, algorithm to see if it would work, and they uh, did it in Shreveport, Louisiana, and they couldn't find any statistical significance in the the outcomes. But again, if you're a chief, you sort of compare it to what you have. If right now police patrols are somewhat random and are based on like the instincts of your sergeants or your lieutenants of where you should go, or really there's no guidance, maybe having a place-based predictive policing idea is value-add, right? If it doesn't cost too much and you didn't know how you're patrolling anyway, maybe this is a way to improve. And again, if it isn't based on racially problematic areas and if it has the buy-in of the community and the, the police officers themselves, Maybe it adds something uh, to the otherwise pretty unstructured reality of policing. And so on that PredPol study you're mentioning, you know, it's something like putting head-to-head analyst versus the PredPol algorithm. Both have them generate their, kind of stylizing this bit, their top 100 predictions on where they think a crime is going to occur. And then over the course of whatever time window of the day, they actually see how many of those 100 had a crime event occur at them and compare them and see which one does better. I've seen this study, and, and you describe it in your book, too, and it's one where I think the the base rates, the effect sizes here matter, because you know you might have in your mind, when you first hear this, a tremendous amount of accuracy, you know, minority report kind of stuff. And the one that they did in L.A., the, you know, the, the, the increase in accuracy was from an analyst of about 2% getting these right up to about 4.75% for the model. And, I, you know, I don't know whether that's a lot or a little or what a chief of police would make of that or what you would. But it feels like it's a sort of the sort of number that needs to be thrown out there just in case someone's thinking that these models are bumping up from, you know, 40 percent of accuracy to 80 percent of accuracy. To me, it's, it's a question of like cost. Right. So if you can stop a few more car thefts or burglaries because your algorithm was correct, and it doesn't cost you much. Hey, that's OK. Right. I, I, I'm with that. If it's costing you, you know, $100,000 or $60,000 and that's not paying for an extra police officer or a librarian or an after school program, that's where I think you have to have that conversation about is it really worth it? And some cities have decided it isn't worth it, right? The costs aren't good enough. The PR isn't always good about it. Uh, some people say, look, you know, in a world of limited resources, we need all the advantages we can get. And if we can see certain patterns and crimes that we wouldn't have been able to see before, we're willing to invest in that. Like That's what we want. Maybe we'll get better. Uh, maybe the technology will get better. Uh, again, think of what you're trying to protect. You're trying to predict that a burglary will happen at this particular time, this time, this area, or a car theft will happen, right? In one sense, odds are it's not going to happen there. And so if you are right a couple times, like maybe that's a good thing. Uh, you also have to, you know, the, the, the study I would like to see is, you know, you're experienced police officer, your crime analyst, and the algorithm and see whether, you know, an experienced police officer would say, yeah, you you want you thought that there was going to be like a car theft at the lot where there's always been a car theft for the last 20 years. Yeah, I could have told you that too, right? That, that's the reality, right? Um, and how much of this is sort of wanting to be ahead of the curve, wanting to seem like you're smart on crime, uh, and how much of it is, is real? How much do these types of programs tend to cost? 
It actually depends on the city, right? So it varies depending on like the size of your city and obviously sometimes the budgets of your city. Uh, so it can be relatively inexpensive. Some are actually given free, right? Because for these new uh, startups, it's in their interest to actually uh, have customers that are using the technology so they can pitch it to other people. And so sometimes a lot of the, the early uh, rollouts were done free of charge because they were trying to, you know, essentially the city is piloting uh, the technology. Uh, it can run up into the you know hundreds of thousands, I think, in really big cities. Uh, and that's just the place-based models. The person-based, uh, there's a, a, a partnership with LAPD and Palantir, which is a big you know company that sort of got to start chasing terrorists around the, the globe and does sort of social network analysis. I believe their contracts are in the millions, uh, where they're really building a, a network database of connections of group crimes or, or associates or gangs. Uh, and in those cases, it, it gets pretty pricey. And that's the financial cost. You also talk a lot about a different sort of cost, the possibility of, of bias in the models. And in the book, you sort of usefully refer to this as, as black data. Unpack what that means. So I use the term black data to sort of describe or expose three related concerns I have with all big data policing. One is the transparency problem, right? It's a black box. You can't see in there. The second is race. Like the data that we're collecting is racially encoded. It comes from real people in certain jurisdictions. There's real race bias and race, racial tension between police and communities. And the third is that it's sort of dark and distorting. It's changing our laws, changing sort of our Fourth Amendment freedoms, our, our civil liberties in ways we haven't really thought about. Like that if the algorithm is, is changing how an officer sees a community, and the individuals in the community, that's going to change how they are suspicious of people in that community. And we need to really pay attention to that because a lot of these changes are happening. You're following the technology. You're following the, the uh, inputs and nudges of the technology. And you're not really thinking about how it's dist- distorting some of the things we care about, which is fairness and transparency and constitutional rights. Can you give an example of the way race can become sort of perpetrated in one of these models? Right. So I think the problem with Chicago's heat list, which we talked about, is the fact that part of the model is based on arrests. Arrests are really proxies for where police are and what they see, right? Different from, say, calls for service, like my car was stolen, your car was stolen, you're telling the police your car was stolen, not what police think is a car theft. But with arrests, you're really using a proxy for where police will go. And that means that the crimes that you're focused on are the crimes police are focused on. And in a city like Chicago, where the Civil Rights Department, the Department of Justice Civil Rights Department, did a whole study, 2017 study, about racial bias in Chicago and found systemic, structural, real race problems in that city, your arrests, your inputs, are going to have racial problems, racial bias problems, and that's going to impact the outputs. And so it's not surprising that the vast majority of people who are in the Chicago's heat list are young men of color. Um, and some of that, you know, Chicago would push back and say, well, those are all the also, the kids are getting killed, right? The young men who are getting killed are young men of color. So, of course, that's what we are. And that's a complexity that you have to pull apart and deal with uh, because there's a lot of overlap and correlation. That's a fair response. Um, but we do need to be careful about the inputs. I think the choice of inputs of arrest is a mistake. I think there are other ways, other inputs that are sort of less uh, fraught with police, you know, thumbs on the scales of where police are. And we should be focused on that. I give the the predicted the place-based predictive policing companies, I give them credit for choosing not to use arrests. They actually could have used arrests because that's a data point we actually collect and we know pretty well. But they realized that if they just map arrests of crime, they'd simply just be mapping where police are patrolling already, and that would be a self-fulfilling prophecy that doesn't make any sense. So they made a strategic 
choice not to use that because they're worried about perpetuating sort of existing police bias. And I give them credit when they do the right thing and they realize that these choices of building your model will have impacts where police go. And you want to be cautious about how these models would be, will be created. What do you think are the right types of inputs? So I think a move away from arrests is good. I think calls for service, like, you know, if you're talking about burglaries or car thefts, like your car was stolen and, and your house was burglarized, there's a, there's a caution there too, right? Because in some communities, poor communities who don't trust the police, if your house is burglarized, you still might not call the police because you don't trust them. You don't know what will happen. You don't know if you'll become a suspect. And I know that's really sad, but I think that's true. And so some of the reporting of the data might actually be inaccurate because of existing race bias and, and concerns. Not to mention the big problem is that if you build a police system based on the data that you are seeing, you're not building it on the data you're not seeing. So a whole host of crimes, sexual assaults, domestic violence, interfamily offenses, you know, even possession offenses, never get recorded. And if you transform your system into a data-driven system, there's a whole group of crimes that will just not make it there. But I think you can pay attention to your question of what are inputs that are less biased is a recognition that you don't want to base it on something that will simply be the result of police patrols. Because, you know, take Washington, D.C., for instance. If you wanted to go patrol, like, the dormitories of Georgetown University and GW looking for drugs, I bet you'd find some. But we don't do that, so those data points don't ever show up there. If you want to patrol the public streets of certain areas in Southeast, you might find it. And that will be the distortion not of where drugs are being used, but where police are looking for drugs being used and sold. And that kind of sort of carefulness in building the model, I think, is important. And I hope people are starting to have that conversation. Even if the models are still biased to some extent, I take it the relevant next question is, and you've teed this up a little bit before, of kind of compared to what? And so if we're thinking of the counterfactual of the the front analysts or just the street cops making personal decisions about where to go, do we know anything about the relative bias of those types of tactics? Like, Have there actually been any studies on this? There haven't really been studies on it, but I think it's something that if you begin a data-driven system, you might actually be able to study a little bit better than you had, right? Uh, in the sense that you might be able to uh, recognize that certain areas are being over-policed, right? So let's say you realize that there are um, correlative impacts of policing, that it creates racial tension in the community, it creates distrust. You can build a system that recognizes you've been over-policing a particular area, and maybe we need to counter that. So you don't send the, the, the algorithm says, we're not going to send this officer back in because we recognize this might have a larger community effect that's negative. And again, I give Hunch Lab is sort of developing and playing around with this some credit for trying to think of these externalities in ways that might change the algorithm. It might be the case that the, the algorithm says you should go to this particular block at this time. But because we keep saying that and we know that that has costs to how the community thinks of the police, we're not going to send them there. And that's a fast, it's interesting, it's all developing, uh, but it's all developing in ways that I think are really useful for those who are data scientists or models or ethicists to think about how do you want to design a system that takes into account the larger costs of policing in a way that's not just crime, arrests. And this is a place where I think the, the history of why these models have started to spread recently comes back in an important way, which, you know, of course, there is certainly, you know, there's a lot more data now, the technology is advancing, the the modeling skills are advancing. Uh, but you talk a bit about the sort of response to scandals and actually the element of race and actually adopting these models. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that story? One of the the underlying 
themes of the rise of big data policing is that officers or, or departments that adopt these technologies in non-transparent ways always seem to run afoul of the scandal. This is the pattern, right? They adopt a technology using the normal police procurement mechanisms, which means no one's paying attention. Then some journalist finds out about it, and there's suddenly a scandal. Uh, and that scandal can be that there are, you know, arrests in Louisiana based on Palantir's technology that no one knew about, even though people did know about it, but that was in the headlines just a couple weeks ago. It could be the use of technology of, you know, doing overflight cases in Baltimore. Uh, and where are they doing it? West Baltimore. Where else do they test it? Compton, California. What do those two things have in common? A, you know, disproportionate racial minority that lives in those areas. And all of those uh, sort of uh, are recognitions that, if you use these technologies in unthinking ways, you're going to replicate some of the racial biases that exist that people aren't paying attention to, that need to be paying attention to. I think that you can catch that if you're critical or self-critical. And I hope that as these you know, departments are sort of de- developing these technologies, they ask those hard questions. And one of the ironies here to my mind is that in some places, sometimes I have the sense that people have wanted to embrace these types of models under the hope that they would be more, they'd be objective. We are starting to realize that if you leave people to their individual day-to-day choices, often unconsciously, they might drift into going to police the same area they've been doing. And that's where some of the, the racial profiling elements come into play here. The models could be a way out of that. And yet we're finding in the implementation of these models, the sort of escape from that pattern isn't, isn't perfect. So there's the opportunity to correct for it, but you have to be aware that you need to correct for it. And if you're not thinking about it, it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of police show. You know, the great fear, which is a little oversimplified, is that police predict an area of crime. They show up there. They arrest someone. They input that data. They look for the next high crime area. Oh, look, the place where you just arrested someone. They keep going back, right? And you basically can build your own high crime area and keep it permanent by keep arresting them, right? If you do that unthinkingly, you are obviously really just modeling policing and not modeling crime. Um, If you do it in a thinking way, you might actually be able to recognize that there are some real value choices here, right? What kinds of crimes do you really want to prioritize? Do you only want to prioritize crimes that you can sort of see that are visual? Like right now, if you look at the history of policing in America, part of the reason for our sort of mass incarceration world is that police tend to go to public crimes, like drug dealing happens in public. Those people get arrested, not people who deal in their nice homes. Um, You know, the crimes that happen uh, where you can see it tend to be where police stop people and arrest people or contact people in these ways. You know, data actually could find the crimes that you wouldn't otherwise be able to see, like you know, child porn crimes or trafficking crimes. Trafficking is an interesting example where the sex trafficking work is a financial crime where you have to have financial transactions. And sometimes those transactions leaves trails that you couldn't necessarily see by watching the person, but you could by watching the money. And so sometimes you can use some of these same techniques to be able to identify patterns of, of sort of sex trafficking in ways that you wouldn't be able to see. And so the reveal comes from the data, which is only because of the data, because it wasn't there before if you're just watching the people uh, live their normal lives. How worried are you about errors in the data? Very. I mean, so policing is one of the most imprecise professions you can imagine. Think about what happens. You're an officer on the street. You see a guy who you think has a gun and drugs. He sees you, and he runs away, and you chase him, and you stop him six blocks later. Where did the crime occur? Where you saw him or where you stopped him? 
because it matters, right? In a precise, you know, predictive policing area where everything is going to be modeled on the precision of like a 500 by 500 square foot. It's like a block area where it puts in. When you go back and you, the officer, have to use your handwritten thing of where do you stop them and you estimate the address because why it doesn't really matter the precision exactly where it was uh, or you get it wrong, you, you transform it or, you know, you, tra- you, you transpose the letters. All of those, if you add in that we are talking about millions upon millions of actions by millions of officers every day in these systems is going to create error. And if you haven't built into your system any way to check it, audit it, correct it, which you haven't, you're going to have a system that is simply rife with error, which maybe is okay if you acknowledge it's rife with error. But if you have the veneer that this is objective, data-driven, you know, accurate information, big data sounds great and sounds perfect, you're not seeing all of the building blocks that are filled with you know, problematic error, including the analyst error of when you're interpreting what this means and, 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 and how you're seeing these patterns. And so all of that needs to be exposed before it's adopted and looked at critically. Because you know, when it shows up in court, a judge says, well, why'd you stop him, officer? Well, the algorithm told me to stop him. No one's asking those questions of error rates or, or accuracy issues or auditing or any of those things. Let's, let's imagine a world where we solve all of these problems of embedded racism. We solve all of the, the data error problems. There are still massive just kind of privacy implications here. And so, you know, if we come back to the Fourth Amendment, our kind of constitutional touchstone for unreasonable search and seizures, how does that framework mesh with this emerging technology? Not very well. Um, one of the realities is our Fourth Amendment was built in a small data era. And we're in a big data era, which changes things, right? So imagine you're an officer and you see an individual walking down the street. Uh, In the old days, you'd see, if you didn't know him, a big city, you'd just see what he was doing. And your suspicion would be based on what the actions were, whether he was actually doing something that rose to the level of criminal activity. Nowadays, it's at least if you fast forward to a world where you have surveillance technologies and facial recognition, the officer will say, oh, look. That's John Smith, the guy. He just got out of uh, a jail. He has three prior robberies. Uh, he is, you know, uh, affiliated with a gang. It seems like he just went bankrupt. Uh, he doesn't seem like he has any home. What's he doing looking in that car? I bet he's looking to go do some sort of crime. I'm going to go check on him, right? The guy on the street didn't do anything different. What has changed is the information around him that the police now have. And honestly, it's information that the, maybe the police should have, right? Wouldn't you want to have officers know more about the people in their community? Because the flip side of this, and this, I think, is an interesting tension in all of this, is you imagine you see that guy in the street. Officer does a facial recognition and say, oh, look, wow, that's the honor roll student. That guy was a quarterback there, and he's got, he got a full ride to Vanderbilt. Yeah, it's so great he's doing well now. You know, I'm not going to stop him. And sometimes when I give these talks, you know, I have people who in the audience are like distinguished like civil rights lawyers who are like literally have bled and fought for civil rights in America, African-American leaders there. And they come up to me afterwards and say like, I wish this technology existed. It would mean I wouldn't have been stopped 17,000 times in my life for being a black man in America. It means someone would have seen me and maybe thanked me for my service or what I did instead of seeing me as a threat. And so the more information, you know, cuts in different ways, right? Because it will help create suspicion when it's not there because maybe the guy's just going to visit his mom or whatever. Uh, but it also might 
distinguish and allow suspicion not to be there. Because right now, a lot of times, we have proxies of suspicion that we're acting on or the officers are acting on that can be inaccurate. Do we have emerging case law about how courts are making decisions about whether they consider these kind of technological inputs, whether it's you know reasonable suspicion for stops, probable cause for searches, what's kind of happening now in the, in the courts? We haven't really seen... Uh, case law on this, uh, in part because, you know, take a case where the police want to fight the suppression hearing with the Fourth Amendment, you know, suppression hearing, uh, the officer would have to memorialize that the basis for the stop was some predictive tip. I heard through third-hand hearsay when this first came out, officers were instructed not to write down the fact that it came from a predictive tip because, you know, they didn't want to litigate it. The companies don't have a great interest in litigating because it might reveal some uh, proprietary secrets. Uh, So we haven't seen any real federal or state case law about how a court should analyze it. The, the, the reasonable decision standard is basically comes from an old case, Terry v. Ohio, that involved an experienced officer watching three guys case a, a jewelry store, walking past and in a suspicious way. And the court said, look, we don't want to have a standard that is probable cause, because they didn't have probable cause he's going to commit a crime. But we also don't want to have a standard that doesn't allow that officer to investigate what happened. So they came up with this standard called reasonable suspicion, which is basically specific and articulable facts that taken with rational inferences of those facts warrant the belief that criminal activity is afoot, which basically means something more than a hunch, less than probable cause that allows officers to justify this stop. The courts have said you can take in a whole host of innocent factors to determine reasonable suspicion. So the location of an area, a high crime area, undefined by the Supreme Court, can be a factor in whether or not someone is, you know, doing something that would rise to reasonable suspicion. Flight, like running away, might do it. If you think about what place-based predictive policing is, it's essentially a micro-high crime area. We have predicted this area is a high crime area based on an algorithm, based on objective data. Uh, And so I think it will have some factor into a court. I think a court would look at it and say, I have to consider this as part of my totality of circumstances. I hope it wouldn't be enough. I hope they would require more, but the, the definition itself is so malleable, you can see how the thumbs will be on the scales to justify this as a justified stop, even though, again, it doesn't mean that the individual has done anything different. It's the circumstances around him or her that has changed, that what other people have done, other people's actions that have changed the character of the neighborhood would somehow change that person's Fourth Amendment rights. And that's a problem if we're not sure that the algorithm gets it right. And that, that's useful for the place-based predictions, which I, I agree with you. There is that factor of, is it a high crime area? And you might agree or disagree with it, but Supreme Court said it's there. That can kind of map into it. What about the person-based predictions, though? Those risk, individual risk scores. Doesn't I think that'll be even easier for a police officer to justify, right? They're going to be on the street. They're going to see this guy, run his name, and know he's a 482. Uh, I think that they're going to say, that gave me a reason to believe that he might be doing... A, doing something violent. The risk factors go to violence and the heat list. So if they thought he was about to do an armed robbery or a shooting or something, I think those kinds of justifications will be uh, seen in courts. And I think that a court will have to take that into account to say, like, it's a factor, maybe not a dispositive factor, the only factor, but not something that the officer should blind themselves to and something that might create suspicion. Out of all the human beings in Chicago, this person has a more elevated score of being involved in, in a violent crime than the vast majority of people. Shouldn't that be a part of the calculus? 
the third area you talk about, and I think this is one where the scale of it in some ways actually troubles me more than the person in prediction based person in place based prediction is the quantity of of just surveillance. Can you give us a sense of how police departments are using just the massive quantity of video and audio and GPS that's just constantly tracking us once they want to start investigating a particular case? You know, I think it depends on sort of the capacity of your police department. I think some police departments honestly haven't changed that much. And I think some in more high profile cases are recognizing that we are revealing ourselves through data trails and that they can track us through our OnStar car. Uh, They can track us through our Fitbit. They can track us through our uh, smart home that can go even what room you're in and what happened. And we're starting to see those uh, sort of digital trails emerge in cases. There are a couple sort of, you know, archetypal cases that we've been talking about. There's one where essentially a murder victim's Fitbit undermined the husband's story that uh, she wasn't there. And you could tell that she was alive at times. He said that uh, she was dead. Uh, there's a case out of Germany where someone, they literally had the guy dragging the body and they could see the elevated heartbeat during the moments where he's dragging the body through the woods. Like, this is going to be the clues that we're going to start looking for, again, through a subpoena. That's all investigatory. It's right. So you have a suspect. You want to try to build the inferences of how a crime might happen. And if you think about what happens in many sort of violent crimes, is a, it's a puzzle, right? Officers know a crime happened, and they have to try to figure out, did this person do it, and what are the pieces of that puzzle that fit to show they did it? A lot of times in the pre-digital age, it was, well, was there a witness? Was there you know, some sort of circumstantial evidence of, that would connect you? But now we have a whole lot more puzzle pieces, right? You know, clues of, you know, surveillance cameras that capture you on the scene, automated license plate readers that show your car was in the area at the time, uh, your cell phone that's literally a tracking device that knows everywhere you've gone. All of these are going to make their way into criminal cases and are going to change how police do their jobs Um, in an ability to have more confidence in terms of criminal prosecution. I think just as there was sort of a, a, a CSI effect when that television show came out and everyone wanted to know, like, where's the fingerprints and the DNA on the simplest case? I think there's going to be like a digital CSI effect where people are going to want to know, well, where's the digital forensic evidence about that? Which is actually a huge burden for law enforcement because most law enforcement agencies don't have the capacity to either have the expert to show that or necessarily in the run-of-the-mill case want to invest the time and money to do the digital forensics to find that, right? It just costs money and and you have to get used to it. You have to have officers who are themselves comfortable in that digital world. And that's a useful example of one where law enforcement is seeking information through a court order warrant, so it's probable cause, part of investigation. There's also the, the spectrum of data collection that you could just do without a warrant. You know, I'm thinking now of I mean, we don't exactly have this here in the district, but in some other places where you have you know, New York or something ubiquitous, cameras everywhere, you've got automated license plate reader trucks driving around, you've got the potential to be following people on Twitter, Facebook, et cetera. Kind of what does is, what is that world of surveillance look like that could happen outside the protections of the warrant scheme? So right now, law enforcement is adapting to this new digital age by having units that are tracking social media, right? So you have gang units that now are not just like tracking gangs on the streets, but gangs on YouTube and recognizing that a lot of the sort of criminal communication, sort of threats and back and forth actually now happens on social media. Like in 
quasi-public in the sense that if you were paying attention, you could see it. So there are gangs threatening each other on Twitter. There are people flashing gang signs and threatening each other via YouTube videos. And because it's a youth culture and it's a youth gang uh, reality, a lot of departments are now investing time to start studying that and recognize they can put together uh, prosecutions based on associations. You want to prove someone's in a gang and you think someone did crime, you can now use the YouTube video that shows this suspect was with these other suspects who you know are in a gang, and suddenly they're all linked into these large gang conspiracies, which can be pretty difficult because the reality of gang conspiracies is every gang or every alleged person can get charged with the maximum charge of one guy is a murderer, but the otherwise are hanger-ons or just grew up with the murderer throughout their, their, their childhood. They can all get prosecuted for the same most serious crime of murder or conspiracy to murder. And that can have really coercive effects because it's really hard to go to trial in those kinds of cases when you're risking the rest of your life in jail. And so a lot of pleas or a lot of situations where these big gang conspiracies are being built on social media information, and it's really hard to push back to show that maybe it's not as exact as you want. It puts a lot of trust and faith in prosecutors to do it right. Um, you're also seeing uh, visual surveillance, right? We are building a camera system where we are able to track people and see people when they're crimes. And so something happens, you see on the local news, the still photos from the surveillance camera about the people who are doing what they're doing. We're able to do facial recognition to sort of track these people. And we're building a larger network of surveillance through these different digital clues that, again, for investigating crimes, trying to find the person who did whatever they did, makes it much easier. It makes it much harder to sort of escape that sort of digital uh, reality if you are just living your life. And maybe this is looking kind of the, the frontier of where the technology might go, but the some of your descriptions of kind of the, the real-time use of this, so, you know, an on-the-fly decision about whether as an officer you're even going to stop someone, if you have the option to have immediate access to video footage that facially recognizes the person and maps where they have been for the last six hours in your city and the things they've been doing, I, I mean, I could see that going in any number of directions of usefulness or potential for abuse. How do you, what do, what do you think we're kind of in store for as that technology continues to advance in that direction? So I think, you know, again, in the future, we're not quite there yet, but you might have a reality where an officer gets a response, you know, shooting at this block. The command center shows the officer on his smartphone uh, the location of where, the, where he's going, maybe some of the danger points of where you could be shot or, or there could be risk. You could have background about who are the players in this neighborhood. Are there gang, is there gang shootings? Were there other prior things? Who am I looking for when I get there? in terms of you know, what are the suspects? Can I get an ID of the individual like who might be there, the gang members there? Um, all that can happen in relatively quick real time. It kind of changes what police have to do because they have to process a lot more than they ever had to before. But it can add uh, pretty valuable uh, uh, information to sort of either stop a future crime or investigate a past crime. You could then go beyond that. If there were surveillance cameras, you could roll back the tapes to see who was there, who was not there. Uh, maybe be able to isolate, you know, clues or maybe get a license plate or fragment of a license plate. You can run that through the system, see who the associates are. And all of that is growing in capacity if you've built a surveillance architecture of this data. And you're seeing that actually being built in L.A. L.A., through its partnership with Palantir, is actually building a lot of these data sets that would allow that kind of real-time investigation in a really quick way. You're not seeing in other jurisdictions that either don't have the resources 
or frankly, don't necessarily want that kind of uh, capacity because it all costs a lot of money and costs a lot of uh, person power to actually have analysts who can do that kind of work. Uh, and it's a huge investment. If you spend your time sort of focusing on this, you're not focusing on other aspects of uh, what police do every day. You also talk about bright data. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? In the uh, focus on big data policing, we've always connected the risk identification of, you know, risk of violence or crime with the remedy of policing, right? The response to a predicted area of crime is we put a police car in the area we predicted there'll be crime. In Bright Data, I talk about that maybe the problem with predicted policing is the policing part. Maybe the risk identification of where areas of crime might occur, people who might be involved in crime, don't require the police to respond. If you know a particular block is of risk for a particular crime, maybe you fix up the block. Maybe you don't, putting a police car there seems like such a short-sighted solution, right? There's clearly an environmental vulnerability that's going on in that area that could be fixed. If you can identify the risk narrative, why is crime occurring in this place, maybe you can come up with social services solutions, city solutions that are not policing solutions. But we have uh, sort of defaulted to that the remedy for all risk identification is policing, in part because that's how it's been funded. The money has come in for predictive policing from the federal government, from uh, contracts or grants or whatever it is. And so we've linked risk and remedy as uh, connected in a way that they don't have to be. We have a much more constructive way forward than necessarily putting the short-sighted policing solution. One example that actually came out of D.C. involved the Department of Public Health here and how, uh, how drug overdoses were sort of being misunderstood. Like we weren't collecting the data, and we started to collect the data to see that maybe our concern with where the overdoses were, go- were happening, and even the types of drugs that we thought were actually driving the overdose epidemic, weren't what we thought they were. And by seeing the data, actually reviewing the data, we could respond not necessarily with a policing response of go arrest the person who's involved in the drugs, but with a public health response. Well, let's get that person into treatment. And those kinds of uh, recognitions that data can identify social solutions to social problems that don't involve police, I really think need to be emphasized. And I really think we need to fund those and think about them in a, in a new way. Another variant of the kind of bright use is, is looking internal to the police department, or I guess when you shine the light in this way, it's what you refer to as blue data. Can you maybe give an example of that type of use? Sure. So, you know, blue data is this idea that as we've built this architecture of surveillance to surveil citizens, we've accidentally built an even better system to surveil police and what police do every day, right? We now know if you have a police officer that's tracked by GPS in their car, exactly where they patrol, what they do, what their patterns are. We didn't know that before. Those body cameras that are pointed outward are also collecting information about the police officers, how they respond to people, how they treat people, how they talk to people, all this data. The surveillance cameras that are watching people on the street are actually watching police officers also on the street. So if you wanted to go back and look at all the times an officer handcuffs someone or all the, officer, all the times the officer contacts someone, you could do that. You actually have the technology in certain cities to be able to do that. It also offers opportunity to do some data mining. There are a couple of interesting examples. One is out of uh, California. Uh, Jennifer Eberhardt, who's an academic out of Stanford, was embedded with the Oakland Police Department to try to understand uh, why there was a problem of, first, whether there was a problem of racial bias in the policing, and there was, but then sometimes why. And in her studies, she was actually able to data mine the audio of police body video, body cam video. So it's always going on, but it's also recording what police are saying. And she was able to show 
that if you data mined it, you could realize that officers were talking to black people and white people in different ways. They were treating black people and white people with different levels of respect. In fact, they could literally predict with like 80% accuracy whether the officer was talking to a black person or a white person based on the language used. And it turned out to be things like apologies or sir and ma'am, or ways of explaining what was going on that were done for white people and not black people. And that's a great example of how you could train around it, right? I assume that officer didn't even know that they were treating people differently. Another fascinating example happened out of Charlotte Mecklenburg. There was a bunch of data scientists out of Chicago, went to Charlotte Mecklenburg to figure out why there were these use of force uh, incidents. And they had, incre- they had incredible access, and they built a really big model, all sorts, like 320 different variables and different shifts and different times. And they're trying to figure out where were these spikes of violence. They found two things. One, they found that an officer that responded to a traumatic scene, maybe it was a child death or a suicide, the next shift had a much higher elevated incidence of violence. Why? Because that officer is a human being. They just seen something traumatic. They're still processing it. And then you put them in a scary you know, world to make a, a split-second decision, and they mess up. That's actually what we know about trauma. We know people aren't good at that moment when they're still suffering from that trauma. And so they had an easy solution. Don't send that officer to the next crisis scene. And they were able to reduce their violent crimes. They also realized with domestic violence, domestic violence are notoriously like emotional scenes. Usually the man who tends to be the abuser is in a hyper state of, of, of excitement when the police arrive. And they realized that they sent one or two officers, it escalated. The, officer, the, the man would, get, would try to challenge the officers and the officers would respond and there would be violence. But they realized that they sent more officers, like seven officers, seven cars to the scene. There was never a reaction because essentially the guy realized he couldn't take on seven, seven cops. And so they were able to reduce the predicted violence from a particular area. And these are just two examples from when data scientists got to embed in policing to study what happens in policing, that these insights that are beneficial to police officers and police departments could be found. But generally speaking, police departments don't want to open themselves up. They don't want to see that sunlight, even though I think if they saw it as a mechanism of training and accountability, you could really improve policing in a way. And that's sort of the theory of blue data. Who do you think should have access to this data? And, you know, I'm I'm imagining for a lot of places of policy, you know, we're trying to make data more open, um, but there's trade-offs there in terms of protecting privacy, confidentiality. Curious if you have thoughts on that kind of space. There's not going to be an easy answer, right? Balance the desire for complete transparency, which may not be the best thing, uh, because it's going to reveal information that you wouldn't want out. You wouldn't want you know, people, good government people knowing that you had a criminal arrest or conviction, right? You wouldn't want to know that your face is in the database. But police want to know that, right? And so I think you have to recognize that the, the need for privacy is going to be intentional with the need for transparency. I think that in terms of figuring out the algorithms and who's being on these lists, I think you want to have auditors, like independent auditors, who everyone trusts to go in to see if they can do it, like data scientists who, who can sort of be an objective uh, a voice. I think you have to do some real work with security. You know, Just like most police stations don't think that they would ever be robbed, even though they have guns and drugs and other things in there. I think we don't spend much time thinking about the security of police data, even though you can imagine it pretty valuable if people got in and messed with it or deleted it or whatever it would be. Um, so I think we need to sort of be cautious as we build these things out of uh, who has access, both for malicious actors internally, but also externally. And, and this is one thing I've been working on. I've been working a bit with the policing project at NYU and Barry Friedman, where we're trying to recognize that this isn't in the competitive skill set of any 
existing chief or really any government now to really do the risk reward analysis. And each city and each chief might actually come out with a different calculation. But to think through what are the risks and rewards ahead of time and have an, an objective entity come in and say, look, these are the considerations you need to make before you make this decision. We don't care which way you go on it, but we do want to make sure you've thought about it and built in the systems to be able to do it is a real need. And you can see it across the country. People are saying we need help with this. This is really complicated. Every technology we talked about is different. Drones are different than surveillance cameras that are different than predictive policing of place and people, which is different than, you know, uh, cell phone stingray technology, which is different from automated license plate readers. Each one is nuanced and different. Each one has different calculations of privacy. And it can become overwhelming if you're a chief and says, uh, we're using all of those. Now what do we do, right? And there needs to be sort of resources put in to having experts come in and try to help think through, no answers, but help think through the problems and questions before the technology gets adopted. What does the state of the, the technology and its uses look like here in the district? A good question. You know, the D.C. has been really opaque about its use of technology, right? You'll hear uh, the current chief talk about that they're doing a little bit of predictive policing, but it doesn't sound like they have a contract with any of the uh, uh, companies. And it actually sounds like they're doing predictive policing in the old-fashioned way where they're doing uh, sort of, sur- you know, not surveys, but they're, they're understanding, you know, which crews are working in which blocks. They are understanding that these the individuals are real people with real names, and they're able to sort of map them in the old-fashioned way that you understand your community uh, and are predicting the people among those uh, who might be involved in more crime, but not necessarily using algorithms or math or any of those uh, ideas. But I think they do have a sort of an informal targeting system where they're trying to prioritize the people they think are involved in criminal activity, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, we live in D.C. in a true surveillance state uh, where we have cameras and security guards in you know almost all our downtown buildings and around. Uh, most of those are federal, not D.C., so we don't have a great claim, and it makes it hard to actually uh, ask ask for uh, some transparency about it because D.C. says, oh, those are feds. We don't control them. And the feds like, we're not going to tell you what they are. This is for, you know, post 9-11 security. And so we really don't know uh, much about uh, as much as you might think about uh, the, the, the surveillance reality in Washington, which I think is an opening to maybe we should ask some more questions. Like if I, as a law professor at UDC, the public law school in DC, who studies this for a living, doesn't have a clear uh, idea and I'm a citizen of the district, maybe we should have some more uh, democratic conversations about the use of technology. Maybe the answer is we're not using it. We decided to spend our money in other ways. And maybe that's an example for other cities that you don't have to go this path. Uh, But I'd like to have that conversation. And this is one of the kind of ending recommendations of your book too, an annual surveillance summit, I think you call it. What are you kind of envisioning that summit looking like and the things you think should be talked about? Right. So the idea of a surveillance summit is to actually have a moment of accountability where you have a chief and the mayor of the city council, along with technologists and civil libertarians and community members and the police, obviously, in there, having a conversation about what technologies have been purchased through procurement, uh, why they are being used, what steps have been taken to sort of audit it to make sure it's, it's not you know, filled with uh, uh, bias issues or, or, or being done unthinkingly. And you'd have this sort of democratic moment of accountability. And my hope is that that moment might be revealing because at least once a year we'd pay attention to this, I think, pretty important issue. But my real hope is that the lead up to that moment, 
right? The chief has to get up there and say, this is why we're using these technologies. The thought process of having to prepare the chief to get ready for that will answer some of the hard questions and make sure that we're not doing this in unthinking ways. I think that you can get up there and justify a lot of these technologies and say, this is a good use of your tax dollars. But I also think you have to justify it. And you have to explain why it's better than something else. And we don't do that now, in part because police procurement has been a black box forever because no one's really cared. Uh, and in part because we haven't seen it impacting us. And so I think that this moment of preparation, of preparing the community to know, well, what questions do you want to know? What do you really mean by bias? Yeah, you're worried about bias, but what do you really mean? Shouldn't the resources of policing track where crime patterns are? Does it make more sense? Do you really want to have police stationed in areas where there really isn't a crime problem? Is that a good use of your tax dollars? Those are hard questions, right? And they move past the sort of soundbite reactionary responses that we see a lot of times. What are you doing to correct for error? What mechanisms do you have in place to make sure we're not simply getting lazy about our data collection and use? Who have you hired to audit it? What experts do you have who are conversant in data science and technology, right? And I think that will shift to a, a recognition that we need to invest more in sort of our understanding of data and understanding of technology in cities, and that we need to hire people who can actually help educate the city council and the chief and the lower level uh, police officers who have to implement it, and the community at a way that will improve things, whatever the outcome is. I actually don't know what the outcome will be. I actually think if you have a democratic discussion about even some of the most scariest of technologies, the democracy might say, we're okay with that, but at least we now know, and we have a, a method to, to check it. I think the problem is if you don't do that, there's always a backlash and a scandal, and it gets shut down, even if the technology actually has positive elements. And so I think it's in everyone's interest. I think it's in the chief's interest and the city's interest to get ahead of the curve and ask these hard questions at the front end so you don't have these back-end scandals and, and drama that you don't need if you have an open conversation about the technologies you're using. It seems our experience recently with the police department's body-worn camera program maybe actually provides some momentum here around the the policy development, the decision to do it, the study of the impacts on the streets, there was quite a lot of open debate and discussion and transparency. I don't know how closely you followed it or think that that provides a template that we can build on for other types of technologies in the district. I think it's an example of how if you get ahead of it, and you do it in a way of saying, look, we're doing this to study it. We're doing it to be transparent, and we're going to respond to the civil libertarian groups. We're going to respond to the community and engage your honest fears and reactions that whatever the outcome is doesn't matter because the process worked. And I think that right now, if you pulled the people who are paying half attention to that process, they wouldn't actually know the outcome of the body cam study, but they would know that there was an open discussion beforehand so they feel better about it. And to me, that's the lesson, right? That what, these technologies are constantly changing and they're gonna be technologies we haven't even thought of yet, right? Uh, but if we have that conversation ahead of time, we will blunt some of the you know, reactionary responses to the positives and maybe correct some of the, the unthinking negatives that can happen if you're sort of adopting this. You know, I, I wrote this book, you know, trying to put together all the things I learned about this. And I realized at the end of the day, I might have actually written it for like the police bureaucrat who has been tasked by the chief to fix this big data thing. Everyone's talking about big data. You're in charge. Fix it, right? And that individual is probably not a data scientist. They're probably not a lawyer. They've worked their way up and they're trusted by the chief. And they have to figure out what are the questions I need to answer to resolve these hard problems? And they are hard. 
The book is basically makes you think through these questions ahead of time. And I think it's really valuable for all of us to do that, all of us to basically uh, grapple with how we really feel about this and recognize the real tensions between security, privacy, public safety that have no easy answers. But if you're in discussion, in conversation about it, you can come to a consensus that we can all live with. Andrew Ferguson, thanks for being on the podcast at DC. Thank you so much. The podcast at DC is brought to you by The Lab at DC, an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor of the District of Columbia. The show is hosted by David Yoakum and produced by Carissa Minnick. Check out our archive of conversations on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you subscribe to podcasts.